This episode is supported by Vegamore. I'm a month and a half into my Vegamore journey. I don't know if you've ever had a garden and planted seeds, but when that first little growth breaks ground, it's exciting. And on my very head, I can see some new growth in the areas that I've noticed hair thinning before. And it's exciting to see those little babies coming in. I use the shampoo, conditioner, and the grow serum, which have a lovely, mellow, warm citrus smell. I've been consistently using this and it makes my hair feel soft and full. And it's really important to me that I use safe and conscious products whenever I can. And Vegamore is 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash mind and use code mind at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome to the Mom and Mind podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. I'm joined in this episode by fellow podcaster, Rebecca McMartin, who is the host of Perinatal Stories Australia. She's coming on to share her experience with tocophobia, which is known as a pathological fear of pregnancy, which can lead to avoidance of childbirth. It has a couple different classifications, but primary is a morbid fear of childbirth in a woman who has no previous experience of pregnancy. She is going to also talk about her intrusive thoughts and rapid onset of OCD and also PTSD as a result of the tocophobia that she experienced. We also touch on the importance of mother and baby psychiatric hospitals or psychiatric units, which unfortunately are not as common in the U.S. as they are in Australia or in the U.K., Rebecca is a podcaster and digital creator based in Sydney, Australia, but sees herself first and foremost as a storyteller and mom of a little boy. Following an acute mental health crisis when her son was born, Rebecca found relief in writing and stories as a way to process her pain and grief. And from that experience, she decided to harness the power of that storytelling and start Perinatal Stories Australia which is a podcast, a blog, and social media platform for Australian women to share their lived experience with perinatal mental health. So grateful that Rebecca is on sharing her story with us. So let's hear from her now. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being with us. No, thank you, Dr. Kat, for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And it's such an honor, truly. Oh, I'm so glad that you're on and especially that you're up at uh, before the sun is up <laughs> to talk to us. For me, I'm here in California and you're all the way across the world in Australia. Yeah. So it's 4am over here, but that's okay. <laughs> I had a son who was going to wake me up at 5am anyway, so it's <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> right. But I do appreciate it. And I especially love 
hearing uh, people's experiences who live in places other than, uh, you know, the U.S., obviously mm-hmm. any story is a good story, but I'm always interested to realize, I think that there's, you know, difficulties and stigma and all kinds of things everywhere, not just in our medical system and culture and all that. So. No, for sure. And I think, I mean, what I do on my podcast is I focus on Australia, but purely because it's hard enough to wrap my own head around the medical system in Australia. <laughs> so props to you for branching out and, you know, hearing stories from all over the world, because yeah, it definitely is eye-opening when you hear about you know, certain services available in some countries that aren't available in others. And you'd think, wow, that would be great here or vice versa. And yeah, so good on you Uh, for being able to tackle that because yeah, I'm floored by our own system. (laughs) Right, right, right. And yeah, so there are plenty of people to hear from all over the world. And so, yeah, I would love for you to wherever you're comfortable, start with, um, start wherever you'd like with your story. I think it's fair to say I've been an anxious person my whole life. Um, I was diagnosed as a child. In hindsight, after I went through what I went through, becoming a mum, we discovered that I had OCD, but that it predated my postpartum. So my anxiety and OCD probably started when I was a kid based on, you know, hindsight, which is such a wonderful thing. Um, So going into pregnancy, the anxiety and OCD, that hadn't been explored yet as something. The anxiety had definitely been explored. Um, It had been covered under the umbrella of anxiety my whole life, but the anxiety changed through different periods of my life. You know, Mm -hmm. it went from panic disorder, general anxiety disorder, social Mm -hmm. anxiety, you know, the flavor changed Mm -hmm. (laughs) depending on what season of life I was in. I guess Mm -hmm. as a kid, it was general anxiety disorder. And then, yeah, social anxiety, you know, when you have panic disorder, I say this a lot, but it's one thing to have a panic attack. It's another thing to have it in public. And so mm-hmm. you then become quite scared of going out and, oh, what if people see right. I'm having panic attack? They think I'm going crazy. It just yeah. fuels that social anxiety mm-hmm. and the health anxiety too, oh, which sure. was a big thing for me, which then led into my pregnancy and something that I had really wanted to avoid was um, anxiety getting in the way of pregnancy and birth and parenting. And I'd made a conscious effort throughout my 20s to try to get on top of that, I guess, because I didn't want it to carry into parenting. I didn't want it to rule my life. So I did lots and lots and lots of therapy. And, Mm. you know, that's wonderful, wonderful things that I learned, lots of skills, whether it was CBT, ACT, Um, Mm -hmm. schema therapy. I did a whole range and they're beautiful things. I guess hormones play a big part in Mm -hmm. my story. Maybe Mm -hmm. I've never been on medication before. I was always very stubborn. I have to do this myself, Mm. you know, and I did the therapy and I was so proud of myself. And when I was in a good space mentally, you know, anxiety is not getting in the way of my life. Like when I was a kid, but when I was a kid, I couldn't leave the house because of anxiety, you know, it took so painful. It was, but I was so proud of myself. You know, even as a 20-something-year-old, I would message my friends, I just got on a bus and it's not, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you're coming from that place of anxiety, that was a big deal for me. So, yeah, I did all that work, I guess, in lead up to parenthood because I didn't want it to get in the way. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. Mm. So from the time I found out I was pregnant, I was... um very overwhelmed by health anxiety. There was all these 
you know, and on paper, everything was great. I had a very, very healthy pregnancy, you know, I was exercising, mm. my, you know, everything was going right. There were no medical complications, but my brain was telling me, what if, what if this could happen? Oh, yes. What if that could happen? And right. all those wonderful things that our brains are so great at doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, you know, something innocent, like my obstetrician would say, oh, look, your blood pressure is just on the high side of normal. We're just going to monitor it. But that would send me into a bit of a panic. And I had the blood pressure uh, monitor. I was checking my blood pressure every day. You know, those apps, you can input your symptoms during pregnancy. And I was doing that two, three times a day just to make sure everything was okay, everything was fine, that I was in control. And I think that came down. I mean, that really sums up anxiety is that uncertainty and you wanting to regain control. So I was trying to find those bits of control where I could. So it started with the health anxiety, all the what ifs. It then became, I guess, a lot more rigid with control. And I wanted maybe decision paralysis is the way to put it. There were so many things to think about and that sense of hyper-responsibility maybe, all that anxiety when you become a parent, you know, all that anticipation. And I couldn't even decide on what nappy rash cream to get my son. So Mm. I would cry for a week straight because I thought that, you know, it was a life or death decision. The baby monitor was two months of crying. Mm. You know, it was all that overwhelm Mm. and I'm going to make a wrong decision. And if I make a wrong decision, the it's catastrophic is how my Mm. mind was interpreting it. And I'd originally gone into throughout my pregnancy thinking, you know, that I was not that I was, you know, looking forward to birth. I wasn't, Mm -hmm. but I was quietly optimistic, you know, and I did all the, you know, the classes, I guess it's like hypnobirthing classes. We call it calm birth here. You know, Uh you do your visualizations and things and I'd done all of that and I was feeling quite empowered. And I, you know, I spent most of my second trimester just imagining birth, visualizing it, you know, feeling quite zen, just even thinking about it. And then as we approached my third trimester, that all of a sudden just that changed. It was like a flick of a switch. Maybe it had been building up for a long time, but all of a sudden I was scared of birth and I was scared of dying. And I think another part of it was this fear that whichever way birth went, if something went wrong, I wouldn't be able to cope and that would have consequences. So it's that fundamental belief that you're not strong enough to cope with whatever is thrown your way. So I then wanted to control to prevent anything going wrong and Mm -hmm. you can't control birth. Um, It's one of those things that you can try and you can learn and you can research to the ends of the earth. But yeah, when your brain, this was where the OCD came in. Um, Mm. I didn't know this at the time, Mm. but that rumination and just going down that rabbit hole of just trying to problem solve and coming up with every worst case scenario and then trying to prevent it. And I couldn't. So it's like my brain just, there's no answer. There's no logical answer. And then it Mm. just, I guess, malfunctioned is how I Mm. think of it because every day approaching birth felt like I was walking one step closer to death. As dramatic as that sounds, that's just where my mind was. I couldn't hold a conversation without crying. If someone brought up, oh, the baby's coming soon, you know, that I would just combust into tears. You can't hide once you're showing. No, exactly. Questions start coming. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. People are are intrusive. People are (laughs) intrusive. (laughs) Um, You know, and then the 
I guess, intrusive thoughts had started during this period. And, you know, we're talking that harm-related kind of intrusive thoughts. So it was, oh, if I get in a car accident or what if I'm at the shops and someone stabs my belly or something, you know, it really horrifying things to see in your mind on repeat. So I then started, you know, what happened when I was a kid, that withdrawal and that avoidance. So it got to a point where I wasn't leaving the house. I was so anxious. I couldn't, the the thought of birth, I remember even being on the shower floor, just sobbing for maybe an hour. And I would make my husband wait on the other side of the shower just to give me some sort of comfort because I just couldn't get myself off the floor. Mm-hmm. Because I thought if I get off the floor and continue, like you know, you're getting closer to birth, you know, you're approaching that deadline, I guess. And yeah, it's so silly, but it was all consuming. And my beautiful obstetrician, you know, she'd said to me, she goes, you know, I don't think you're, you're not high risk, you're low risk. I actually reckon you'll have a really good, really easy textbook birth. And that, that even that reassurance wasn't enough for me. And Mm -hmm. She presented me with the option, look, I do have a lot of anxious patients and they tend to opt for a C-section um, just to, you know, because there is a level of control around that. Mm. It takes the control out of your hands. It puts it into my hands. This is what she'd said to me. And she goes, but no pressure. Like I will fully support you. If you want to have a vaginal birth, whatever you want to do, this is in your hands. And I think this is when I really broke because it was just another decision that, oh my gosh, if I make the wrong decision, it's life or death. It's catastrophic. And, you know, the more I was worrying about, you know, the birth and the consequences of birth or what could go wrong or this fear that I couldn't cope, the more I was worrying about, okay, I'm definitely going to get postpartum depression. And then Mm -hmm. you you Mm -hmm. go down that spiral of worrying about all these things and, (laughs) I laugh now because ironically I couldn't even imagine what was coming. <laughs> and if oh. I did, God, I would, I don't know what would have happened. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was just one of those things that in hindsight we know with therapy and whatnot that that, that fear of birth had developed into the pathological fear of birth, which is clinically called tocophobia. But yeah, at the time it just felt like, oh, it's just my anxiety. Once I get through the birth, things will be fine. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important that you made a distinction, or at least how I heard it anyways, was just Mm. like fear of giving birth as in like people have fear versus a a clinical diagnosis, which is actual like feeling paralyzed. Mm. Like that what you were describing being on the the shower floor is that no decision is a good decision. No, in my mind, you're stuck. Yeah. And both in my head, whether it was a vaginal birth, whether it was a C-section, neither were appealing to me. (laughs) And when I say appealing, I mean both in my mind, I associated with death or trauma, and then that would have consequences that would lead to, in my head, this is the spiral I was going down, Mm. it'll lead to insomnia, which will lead to postpartum depression. And oh, what if I get psychosis? Because I, you know, in my third trimester, I had learned about postpartum psychosis, which It's not something an anxious person (laughs) in their third trimester of pregnancy, I guess, needed to know about, but I'm glad I did. Um, But I was not in a headspace to mentally process what that would mean. And then that fear and that want to control became even more strong because Mm -hmm. if I don't control the situation, if I don't have certainty, then X, Y, Z could happen. And that's terrifying when you're someone who's anxious, uncertainty is not 
fun. <laughs> Uncertainty really underpins that anxiety, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And you, you said something else that is, I think, important and really difficult about this intensity of anxiety is that when you hear something, it becomes incorporated. It's like another thing to be anxious yeah. about. Like everything Absolutely. starts to stick to you. It's really hard when you're already so overstimulated by anxiety to be able to push something new away. I had no but- shield, I guess. There was no shield to protect me. And my, you know, that frontal, the rational part of my brain just was not able to process. It was mm-hmm. flooded with emotion constantly. Yeah. And yeah. even just the thought of, birth or I would just combust into tears. And this is what I'd wanted. I wanted to be a mom and I'd made such a point that I don't want anxiety to get in the way. So then this just added to that sense of failure, you know, Mm. it just, and that all compounds and the way you see yourself. And yeah, I walked into that C-section, you know, you walk down the hallways of the hospital to theatre and I was sobbing. You know, we had the masks on because of COVID. My mask was drenched, absolutely soaked with tears. And I kept saying to myself, you know, once the birth's over, it'll be fine. I just have to kind of grip my teeth, close my eyes, suck it up and it'll be fine. You know, afterwards, it'll be fine. That thing I'm scared of is birth. That'll be over. No worries. Still very scared about it. Surgery is not something that, I mean, again, as someone with health anxiety, being in a hospital, I guess, wasn't very comforting to me. Mm -hmm. It should have been, but it wasn't, you know, surgery, cannula, catheter, like, you know, you're getting a spinal and it's something, I guess I've had the privilege of being healthy. So that really does fuel your health anxiety as well, because you've never had to confront Mm -hmm. those fears. Right. So yeah, walking into that theater, laid down on the table and everything was just happening so fast. You know, let's put the drip in, let's get your spinal, let's cut you open, let's put the curtain up, you know, it's all happening. And you'd be just being told what's happening, not like what a lot of people experienced was like, no one's asking you if you know what's happening or telling um, you. you I knew what was happening and people were beautiful. My obstetrician was absolutely wonderful. The anesthetist was very comforting. I had a midwife holding my hand. My husband was holding my hand. And the hospital where I gave birth at, they had an obstetric social worker. And I'd been in contact with her throughout my pregnancy because my OB was worried about my anxiety. And she made a point to attend the surgery because a lot of, yeah, I had a whole team. And this is the thing, I can't fault anyone else. What happened was purely in my own head. This episode is supported by Ritual. I am by nature and nurture a bit skeptical. I have to see for myself if something works or if it's helpful before I just believe it whole cloth. And I'm open to trying things out to see for myself. And that includes finding strategies for my wellness. I have historically low vitamin D, so it's important for me to take Ritual's Essential 18 because it has D3 in it. And their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin has several other high quality traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. What I love and have always loved about Ritual is that it's a female-founded company, and it's a B Corp, which means they're holding themselves accountable, and not just long-term, but also to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash momandmind. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash mom and mind for 25% off. 
This episode is supported by Hungry Root. I am a creature of habit when it comes to food, like I buy the same stuff in the store and generally make the same stuff over and over. Not really that fun. So in order to shake things up, I use Hungry Root. I can pick a whole meal and they send me what I need to make it, but I will also just let them choose so I don't get into my rut. And it paid off. I got the chicken shawarma non-flatbread. These are flavors that I wouldn't have thought to put together on my own, and they totally work. It was so yummy and so easy to make. And bonus, I also received for free organic roasted chicken breast that I threw into a salad for another meal. Hungry Root is my partner in healthy and yummy living. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Mom and Mind listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash cat to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash cat. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. And can I ask just again, like maybe to the point we were talking about earlier, I know what the system is like uh, sure. there. So you had both a midwife and an OB? Yeah, I'm not a midwife specifically, but it was oh, okay. a room. She just happened to be a midwife in that room. So I didn't even oh, know her name. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, I had an OB and there were midwives in the room as well yeah, as another just... obstetrician and got a whole room of people <laughs> really. And yeah, they were all very, very beautiful. Is that, was... is, is that standard to to have a midwife in the room also or? I could not tell you. (laughs) I just, I don't know. Um, My social worker made a point that when people see that she's there, they know to be extra nice, but, you know, considerate that or sensitive that this is a really anxious person and she needs support. So I don't know. But yeah, it's, yeah, look, it was beautiful. And yeah, they were there for me. And I guess they were there for my son when I couldn't be. So, yeah, it was, like I said, I thought I just had to kind of grip my teeth and get through it. But that has consequences when your mind is trying so hard not to be in a room. Mm -hmm. You know what's happening to you. You're trying so hard not to think about it. You're having panic attack after panic attack during a surgery when you're meant to be quite still, obviously. So, yeah, that was really hard. And, yeah, when my son was born, you know, they said, do you want to hold him? I said no because I couldn't control my own anxiety. I was so overwhelmed by it and my husband, he was so worried about me. He was holding my hand and he could see the state that I was in and they offered our son to him and he said, no, I need to be with my wife. So Mm -hmm. our son was held by one of these beautiful midwives for, Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe 10 minutes of his life, maybe by the social worker. I don't even know who held him for 10 minutes, but Yeah, I say this a lot, but, you know, when you've got anxiety and you spend your whole pregnancy wanting anxiety not to get in the way of pregnancy, birth, parenting, and it does, it gets in the way of birth and it gets in the way of your first act as a parent holding your son. Mm -hmm. That I say this a lot, but I don't think I've forgiven myself for that yet. And it's, and I know anxiety is a disorder, (laughs) you know, it's not something I can control, but fundamentally there is still that part of me that feels like I could have controlled it or I could have, and I guess that's with most mental illnesses we think Mm -hmm. compared to other illnesses, we think we do have some control over it. And when we don't, there's a lot of blame to process. There's a lot of self-blame, a lot of guilt that comes with that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're speaking to the guilt. Thank you for for bringing that in because it's so... I mean, obviously that's your real experience, but it is hard to reconcile yeah. all of that. 
that at the same time that two things can be happening, you can feel so overtaken by the anxiety. And I don't know if for, for you, it happened at the same time, but the guilt be present yeah. at the same time. Like there's nothing you can do and you feel like you should do something. Yeah. And that guilt was even there during pregnancy because I knew I was anxious, especially in that third trimester, but I couldn't control it. You know, I couldn't control that anxiety as much as I tried. As, I mean, I tried to the ends of the earth. That was my mission and I couldn't do it. So the intrusive thoughts were happening throughout, well, once they kind of started during pregnancy, they were happening throughout pregnancy. Yeah, they happened throughout pregnancy, probably from the second trimester onwards. Um, They obviously got worse and worse and worse and worse to the point I didn't want to leave the house. The thought of getting in a car just, yeah. And my safe place is home and especially the couch in our living room. Like that was my safe place. But even that didn't feel safe anymore and then even less so when we brought my son home so things were okay once the birth was over you know it was done I thought okay I can put that out let's just move on mental health doesn't work that way unfortunately then you know the health anxiety started immediately you know it was oh what if I get sepsis or what if my wound oozes or you know, what if I get a blood clot, you know, and I was constantly asking all the nurses who were coming in, can you just check my temperature? Can you check my blood pressure? You know, give me some reassurance. And again, as we know, the more reassurance you have, the more you doubt. And then the more you ask for reassurance and then the more you doubt, and it's just Mm -hmm. a terrible spiral. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also, when you're in the moment, it feels necessary. It's necessary. to, To live. Sometimes. It's like a compulsion, I think. I think mm-hmm. it is a compulsion, mm-hmm. that need mm-hmm. for reassurance and constantly asking people to check my ops. Can you check my wound? Can you, yeah. you know, just reassure me that everything's okay and that I am not dying? Because that relationship with my body completely changed. Anything from the chest down, I wanted to pretend didn't exist because mm-hmm. I didn't want to think about the C-section. I didn't want to think about the wound. So I actually kept the wound bandaged for six weeks just because I didn't want, like even looking at the bandage itself was enough to send me into a panic attack. But um, yeah, I just didn't want to think of anything to do with that part of my body because it just felt like I had to cut it off in order to function. Right. And also when you're having, I mean, you're healing from a surgery, Mm. so you have pain and constant reminders. How do you avoid something that's constantly in your face? Right. It's just so hard. Yeah. And yes, I I mean, like I said, aside from the health anxiety, things were kind of okay for a day. And then I got hit with symptoms that I wasn't expecting. And that was PTSD. (laughs) And I have a really hard time with, you know, the word birth trauma or PTSD purely because technically on paper, everything went well. And so it feels, again, this is another layer of guilt Mm. that I don't have the right to call my experience birth trauma or that I shouldn't have gotten PTSD because other people have it worse. Again, mental health doesn't work that way. So yeah, I got hit with, this was, my son wasn't two days old at this point. So it was insomnia. It was nightmares. So anytime I tried to close my eyes, it was like, I call it like seeing Instagram reels just on a constant loop. Yeah. Just all these really scary images every time I tried to close my eyes. So I'd close my eyes. It would be like a flashing light. It could be a plane crash or a bomb or could be anything. And I would just be jolted. And it's like I'd be jolted awake, but I wasn't asleep to begin with. I was trying Mm -hmm. to sleep, but I just Mm -hmm. couldn't. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, then the intrusive thoughts really, really ramped up because you're thinking, what if I want to hurt my baby? What if I get psychosis? What if I never sleep again? Will that develop into this? What if I hurt myself? And it, I think, yeah, with unlike the OCD I'd probably had previously in my life, I guess I'd, I hadn't attributed that much meaning to it up until this point. So now I'm thinking, well, what does this say about me as a person, as a parent, as a mother? Oh my gosh. Oh. Right. And then, you know, with the health anxiety, having all these symptoms, having the nightmares, having the insomnia, I couldn't sleep for about 72 hours. You know, you're then thinking, oh my God, I'm going crazy. Oh my God, these symptoms are something to be scary, scared of. Mm-hmm. And things just got very problematic. My social worker had come in and, you know, I was, when I say I was a wreck, I was a wreck. You know, I was in the hospital bed day four, day five of postpartum and just sobbing because I just thought I'm going to get psychosis or I'm going to die or what if I hurt my son? And, you know, I guess for all the nurses coming in too, just to see me in that state, it's probably confronting for them as well. My social worker had just mentioned, you know, there's a place that mums can go. It's called a mother and baby psychiatric hospital. And that scared the living daylights out of me because I just thought, oh, no, I just have anxiety. And it was almost like, oh, she thinks I'm crazy and, Mm. oh, I'm broken. And it just it just all fueled. It was a perfect storm. It was just all these things were happening. I finally got home. I'd seen a psychiatrist. The social worker had organised a psychiatrist to come into the hospital. She prescribed some medication. Again, I'd never taken medication in my life. It was the wrong medication for me, but that's another story. Um, That's okay. But I was at home and the symptoms just got a whole lot worse, I guess, because the medication was, things were already bad. I can't blame the medication entirely, but you know, when they say sometimes the medication can make things worse before it makes things better, really made things worse. There was that deep pit of despair. So, you know, I had the anxiety, I had the PTSD symptoms, I had the insomnia, Uh I had the intrusive Uh thoughts, all of that. All of a sudden, it just felt like I was a shell of a person every time I would take the medication and the same thing. So that happened for a few nights. Um, I went to my GP and I said, look, I don't know if it's the medication. I don't know what's going on. All I know is I'm not okay. And the GP had said to me, oh, you just must be suicidal because of the medication. Just go to the emergency room at the hospital. And again, here's me. Oh my gosh. And I didn't think I was suicidal. I knew I was having those intrusive thoughts of what if, what if, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I didn't want to hurt myself. I think that's why I was right. asking for help. And it's just a horrible situation when you feel like, you know, you're asking for help and you're probably being pointed in the wrong direction. I'd gone back to see that psychiatrist just to say, look, I don't know if it's the medication. I don't know if it's the hormones. And this person had said to me, oh, it mustn't be the hormones. It mustn't be the medication. It's clearly you. Maybe you just didn't really want to be a mother. No, that didn't happen. It happened. What kind of horrible, hellish snowball were you in? It just keeps getting worse. My son was a week old, right? So we're not even talking weeks in advance. We're talking like this is all happening in the space of a week, week and a half. Yes. And yeah, so that comment, that I think that really broke me because, you know, you want to be a mum your whole life. You then, oh, maybe I didn't want to be a mum. Maybe this person's right. Maybe I wanted to be a mum for the wrong reasons. And that, you know, that fear that, 
you know, as you say, OCD is ego dystonic. It latches onto the things that we care about the most. There I was being told I didn't want to be a mother. And that's something that I cared about more than anything in the world. And so that started an even bigger spiral. I didn't end up going to the emergency room. My husband point blank refused to take me. Me being me, I said, oh no, but the doctor said I have to go to the emergency room, take me. My husband said, no, I know you. I know you're not going to hurt yourself. I know you're not going to hurt our son. We're going to get you off this medication and you're going to do it at home where you're going to feel safer. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. We went cold turkey on the medication. I don't recommend it, obviously. Please follow your medical advice, everyone listening. But mm-hmm. it was what I needed to do. And immediately that pit of despair went away. So I'd only and been taking only the been medication a- for four nights, but oh, the okay. GP had been so worried that the dose was so high. So the psychiatrist had given me these medi- this medication and said, just keep increasing, increasing, increasing every night up until you get to this dose. No consultation, no hand-holding. It was just, here you go, good luck with these meds. And, yeah, so the GP was worried because I'd only been on them four nights, but it was a strong medication and it was a really strong dose. And that's why he told me to go to the emergency room because he said, coming off this medication, I'm really worried. Thank Mm -hmm. goodness the stars aligned and this was one thing that went well. Okay. (laughs) And that pit of despair went away. Mm -hmm. It went away instantly. But Again, I can't blame the medication because all those other symptoms were still there, that anxiety, that those nightmares, the insomnia. And, you know, yes, that pit of despair wasn't there. That was all consuming, but all the other stuff was there. And, again, I was still scared of those things and I then was feeling quite scared of myself. You know, why is this mm-hmm. happening? And I this is where the OCD really started to ramp up because again, it was, what if I didn't want to be a mother? What if I get psychosis? What if I'm capable of hurting my son? And you just see those images in your head all day. And Mm -hmm. anytime I could, and I wasn't eating at this point either, but if I did manage to leave the couch and walk into the kitchen, you know, if I saw the kitchen knives, I had to, you know, look away because I just thought if I see them and I know where they are, what if, what if, what if, what if, and If my husband or my mom had left scissors on the counter, I would hide the scissors in the drawers underneath tea towels because I thought if I snap and go crazy, I want to make sure I don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. You know, right? It, so the what ifs are so so, so loud. loud, so so loud, and so convincing. You know, and these are all protective behaviors. You know, I'm trying mm-hmm. to protect myself. I'm trying to protect my son, and it's it's never come out in this way before. You know, I'd give my son to my mum for hours and make my husband hold me, like restrain me, because I thought if I wasn't restrained, what am I capable of? Mm. And this is when my husband said, look, I think we need to really, maybe I do need to take you to emergency now. This was maybe eight, nine days postpartum. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the meds, like I said, I can't blame them. They just weren't the right medication, but things weren't great off the medication either. So it was just a terrible situation and I really needed some help. And this is when I called the social worker and I said, look, I don't want to go to emergency right now, but you know, that mother and baby unit you spoke about, can -hmm. you get me into that? Mm -hmm. And she did. And she got me into the only mother and baby unit in my state, which Mm -hmm. happened to be private. And I have private health insurance, the stars aligned, and I got a spot two days after, Wow! Um, which is phenomenal. I didn't yeah. think I would survive those two days, to be honest. That two days felt like 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're counting down every half an hour, every half an hour, every half an hour, like, come on, I just need to make it to this. I just need to get to this. I just need to get to the door of this place. 
And I got there. Um, two days is a blessing when it comes to psychiatric units and especially mother and baby psychiatric units. So I, yes. I acknowledge how privileged I am. But, yeah, those two days felt like eternity. And did, yeah. you, did it continue to feel worse and worse during those two days? Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. you're not medicated. The insomnia is still there. So, yeah, there were all these symptoms, the nightmares, still making my husband hold me, still couldn't look at the scissors. I'm still, you know, my wound is still bandaged. I'm in the shower shaking because you're trembling. You're just running off adrenaline at this point. And I couldn't look at the scar, so I would look into the corner of the shower or close my eyes because I just didn't want to look down. Like I said, that bottom half of my body, I just didn't want to acknowledge existed. Mm -hmm. That's a part of the PTSD, part of the trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I have a tough time with that word because it just feels like, I think there are other people who are more deserving, I guess, of that terminology. But yeah, and again, mental health doesn't work that way, but that's just how my mind responded. Mm. And that's what I learned in hindsight. At the time, I just thought it was anxiety. Mm. And then going into the mother and baby unit, I presented as distressed, obviously. Um, That was the main thing that they were worried about, the extreme distress I was in and the insomnia. So they tackled that, you know, they then put me on the right antidepressants and my goodness, what a magical, magical thing that someone invented these and they're (laughs) wonderful and so helpful. And, you know, once the medication kicked in, all those skills that I had in the past suddenly came back and, Mm -hmm. you know, that journey postpartum wasn't as long because I did have the skills to build on and work on it once I was in a far less distressed state because when you're in that acute crisis mode you can't rationalize you can't journal or meditate you know you can't do those skills that used to help you in that mild moderate category when you're severe or acute or in crisis you need to come down a few levels Mm -hmm. and yeah that's what the mother and baby unit helped me do those psychiatrists were beautiful they were mental health nurses there were I mean and they were perinatal psychiatrists Mm -hmm. so you know, these are just beautiful, beautiful people and professionals and experts. And, you know, when you don't feel safe at home, when you don't feel safe in your own body, in your own mind, mm-hmm. to have somewhere you can go that is safe. Yeah. Again, I was petrified because, hey, a psychiatric hospital didn't sound fun. As someone who'd never oh, no, been, right. you know, on medication, as someone who prided herself on being in control of her anxiety, this was feeling like, okay, this this is just a downward spiral and I'm going to be locked up. I'm going to be admitted for life. Mm -hmm. They're going to take my son off me. Mm -hmm. But within an hour of being there, I felt just coming down a little bit because it was just this place feels safe. Oh, it just felt safe. That's amazing. Given what you had already been through and been suffering Mm -hmm. at such an intense level to within an hour, feel a sense of safety is massive. I mean, look, I was still very distressed (laughs) Sure. But there was a part of me that I could have, I had a shower, mm. I, you know, I washed my hair for the first time in a week. I just felt like, okay, you know, it wasn't exactly comforting. Hey, I'm in a psychiatric hospital, but sure. the people around me felt safe. And that was, mm-hmm. again, a blessing. Mm-hmm. Huge. Right. Huge. That's those mother baby units were everywhere. I agree. And I mean, I know we have, we have more in Australia than you do in the United States. Mm-hmm. Still not enough. But yeah, my heart goes out every time I hear the statistics in the US. I think it's like three that you guys have or something throughout the whole continental US. Pretty brutal. 
yeah, it breaks my heart because I know the alternative. The alternative is you either go to emergency, you mm-hmm. get separated from your baby. Mm-hmm. And I just, I couldn't concede to that. I wanted to be with my son. I wanted to be with my husband. I mean, there was a part of me that thought my son would be far better off without me. Mm. You know, I wanted to push him away because I thought if I push him away, then he won't get attached to me and that will protect him. You know, that will keep him safe from me Mm. and he won't get my anxiety or my whatever's going on in my head. He won't get my crazy. He'll Mm -hmm. go somewhere safe. And so I'd stopped breastfeeding. That was partially one of the reasons because I thought if he doesn't attach to me or if something happens to me, then at least I know he's going to be okay because he's happy on the bottles, you know, and that's a really tough headspace to be in one week postpartum, you know, this all happened. I was admitted, I think day 10 or no day 12 postpartum. Mm. And I was there for four and a half weeks. Mm -hmm. And again, that was the most confronting thing to do walk into a hospital holding my one week old baby. But, yeah, that was also the best thing I've ever done. And obviously in hindsight, which is a wonderful thing. (laughs) Right. So uh, how far out from this experience are you now in terms of time? 21 months, 22 Mm -hmm. months. So like I said, I got, I don't know if lucky is the right word, but I got out of it in a faster, like in a quick enough time when I was discharged, you know, I was still, I was provided with so much support from the hospital. So I was still in touch with the psychiatrist there. They put me into a group therapy, um, perinatal depression and anxiety group therapy program. I was speaking with my psychologist. Like I had all these resources. They have like an outreach program. So they would call me every week just to check in, make sure I'm okay. There was a local mental health crisis team who was calling me every day that first week of it after I got discharged just to make sure and things were good like I was on my medication the insomnia stopped after about a month and then I I didn't have to take the sleep medication I was given Mm. PRN I have Mm. not had to take it since Mm. um you know since I left the hospital and you know if you need to take it that's great like take your medication if you need it I was lucky in the sense that I didn't have to. Things started to fall into place a bit more. You know, you feel a bit more comfortable as a Mm mum. I made friends with the other patients, you know. Mm -hmm. So you're talking mums who know what it's like to go through hell, I guess. Yeah. When you get put into a normal mums group, I'm saying normal in inverted commas, but, you know, you don't Mm want to go up and then they're talking about, oh, this is how I gave birth or this is my baby sleeping or playing and, I was like, I just got discharged from a mental hospital. Like, you know, you don't say that. So to have those other patients who become your friends on this journey, that, that connection was just, yeah, that was everything. So This episode is supported by Factor. Eating better is better with ready to eat Factor meals. And ready to eat means pop it in the microwave for two minutes and done. I mix in a few of these meals into my rotation for the days that we're on the run or that I don't want to make anything. I chose the high protein and calorie smart options, one of which is the mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice with garlic roasted green beans. This is restaurant quality and so tasty. I can adjust how many meals I get in my order as much or as little as I need every week. Plus, I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime, which comes in really handy for our busy schedule. Head to factormeals.com slash momandmind50 and use code momandmind50 to get 50% off. 
That's code MOMANDMIND50 at factormeals.com slash MOMANDMIND50 to get 50% off. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. And for a limited time, my listeners get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code MIND when you check out at oneskin.co. Well, I've kept up my mini resolution of taking better care of my skin after consistently using OneSkin for several weeks and all is going well. I can't see what's going on at a cellular level, but I can tell you that my skin feels soft and healthy. But they did do some cool research that looked at before and after exposure of the OS1 peptide to skin cells, and the one skin scientist found that the peptide reverses skin's biological age. And you can even see that study by Zonari A. et al. in the NPJ Aging Journal. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code MIND at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MIND. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New year, healthier skin. That's one skin. There's so many parts to your story that I think are important for people to hear about and to understand. And one of which is the sleep component. Mm. That insomnia just makes everything worse. And it does. kind of the first couple lines of treatment or defense or whatever you want to call it are trying to find the right medication to, like you said, bring it down a couple of levels, but sleep before really everything, everything else. else. Absolutely. Like you, it is so incredibly important. And I don't think other than in these like specialized ways, it's not usually the first thing that's addressed. No. And I think it should be because I mean, we know sleep disruptions or sleep disturbances can cause um, perinatal depression and anxiety. We also know perinatal depression and anxiety can exacerbate sleep disturbances. So Mm -hmm. it's this cycle. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in that acute state, again, we've got the PTSD symptoms, that insomnia, that hypervigilance and hyperarousal. I was on this level in fight or flight mode for days. And had I not been treated, it was weeks and weeks and weeks of needing to be, Mm -hmm. you know, taking sleep medication in order Mm -hmm. to just reset the system, Mm -hmm. reboot it, um, Mm -hmm. you know, cut the circuit of insomnia. (laughs) And yeah, the difference that that makes is massive. And it's such a big component of the mother and baby unit is, you know, that first week you leave your baby with the nurses overnight and they're beautiful. They look after your baby. They're not going to, you know, let your baby scream for hours, like very responsive. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that first week you leave your baby with them so that you can get a solid night's sleep. And what a difference that that makes. It's, yeah, it's incredible. And me being me, being stubborn, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to leave my baby with the nurses. So instead of a three-week stay, I was there for four and a half weeks because by the time a week went past, I realized I needed to trust them. I needed to trust their process. So it was like I had to start all over again. Like mm. I didn't want to take the sleep medication. I wanted my son with me. I wanted to wake up with him because I thought, I'm a mom. This is what I have to do. If I can't even wake up for my son, what, are, what am I even doing? You know, you mm-hmm. it's that that stubbornness and that control. And, you know, a week in, I realized I had to let that go. I had to trust these psychiatrists. They weren't the same as that 
consultant psychiatrist from the hospital. They weren't, you know, originally I thought, oh, I don't want to trust them. And that, again, that had nothing to do with them. That was just purely, well, if they tell me the same thing as the other psychiatrist, then that must make it true. You know, and that's the, Mm -hmm. you know, you wanting to protect yourself and avoid. Sure. So, right. Then you're kind of trying to work through the avoidance that comes Mm. naturally with OCD. And then now you have um, additionally, the avoidance that comes with PTSD yeah. and trauma. And like, you know, like you were describing, like kind of wanting to not be in touch with mm. your physical experience because, oh my gosh, you've already been through enough in the mental, emotional space. That's already yeah. so overwhelming that to mm. then like you, there's only just so much you can take, like your brain starts to make these really creative ways of just like, mm. okay, we can't really deal with yeah. like waist down right now or whatever, yeah. you know. But even down. just seeing the the bandage was enough to send me into a panic attack and just think I've met, you know, what if I've made the wrong decision? What if this comes back to haunt me? And, mm-hmm. you know, oh, what it might be okay now, but what if it's not okay in future? What if it affects this? What if it land, you know, within point something of a second all these thoughts would just hit me in that mm-hmm. panic and you I mean I was already panicking I was already in fight or flight this would just take it then to another level mm-hmm. and it's like how much panic and adrenaline and cortisol are we dealing with here mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot loads loads yeah at what point did you know or realize that the tocophobia was part of what you were not until with? after the fact not until after I was out of the MBU and was speaking with a psychologist hmm I mean, there were bits and pieces we picked up on in the MBU, you know, talking about, sorry, the mother and baby, you know, we shortened it to MBU. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you're picking up on approaching birth. And I remember saying that I felt like I manifested the birth that I had, that traumatic birth, Mm -hmm. even though, again, it was textbook on paper, but I went into birth thinking it's going to be traumatic. It's going to hurt me. I'm not going to be able to cope with it. And that's what happened. So there was so much blame and guilt with that. Right. And as much as I don't want to believe in manifestation, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to believe that I have this kind of magical thinking or whatever control. There was that guilt, really. Sorry, that um, you just think that maybe I did this to myself and maybe this is my own fault, which is a horrible feeling. And yeah, you bring that up in the MBU and then they, you know, you try to talk through those feelings. But again, when you're in that acute state, it's more about getting you to a level state we can discharge you and then you can process what you've been through. You can debrief, you can go to therapy, but they try not to do too much trauma stuff. Again, when you're right. in that heightened state, you, you sh- really, we shouldn't because the more I was trying to focus on that, the worse I was getting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So after like the they, fact. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. They sounds like they really knew what they were doing. Which, yeah, they'd been doing it obviously for many years and mm-hmm. it got to a point where, again, like I said, a week in I kind of had to confront the fact that I was resisting so much and I went into the room and I said, look, I know I'm not getting better right now with the way things are going, but I want to get better and as much as I, you know, I felt safe here, I don't want to come back. I don't ever want to have to come back and feel like this sense of failure or whatever again. You know, I don't want to feel this way anymore. Like, can you help me? And they said, Rebecca, we've been through this thousands of times. You will get better. Like, you just have to trust us. And that that was a big point for me because here I am wanting to be in control of everything and have certainty. Yeah. 
And I had to let that go. I had to trust them. I had to trust their process. And that's when things started to change for me. But I had to let go of my own stuff first, you know, my own control, my own want for certainty. And, again, that's not an easy thing to do, um, putting your life really in the hands of someone else when you're used to being in control, when you're a highly anxious person, when even now you still want certainty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't have a comfortable relationship with uncertainty, but I just had to let go and just trust. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, that made such a world of difference. And, yeah, they did know what they were doing. I will give them credit. And, (laughs) you know, I say this a lot, but. It's not the motherhood journey I thought I'd have. It's not the story I thought I would tell, but I will always, always, always have a very special place in my heart for that hospital. And I don't say this lightly, but I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them and that place. So, right. Uh, So amazing that that exists at all. And Mm. um, I'm so glad it was there for you. Mm. And given like, you know, how far you've come, I guess looking back on it now, like not to oversimplify your no, at all, course, but like of course. looking back through it now, I imagine that you have a little bit more compassion for yourself from, for what you went through. Completely. And that was the big thing that we learned in the MBU was that self-compassion, which, mm. you know, it sounds so simple, but when you're someone who's used to beating themselves up and, mm. you know, we live in a society a culture really, I guess, and same in America, I assume, where you have to criticise yourself in order to motivate yourself, in order to be successful, in order mm-hmm. to be perfect. You know, we beat ourselves up. We we refuse to be nice to ourselves because if we're nice to ourselves, then we're not going to succeed. We're not going to try harder. You know, it, it's that culture that's really drilled into us and yeah. it sounds so simple, but, yeah, it's so powerful that, learning to reflect and be kinder. And I mean, even this week I was talking to my psychologist and I'd said to her, I still feel like I had some control over this. Like I should have been able to control this situation. You know, I should have been able to do something in pregnancy to stop this, or I should have, you know, you you do those shoulds, right? All those shoulds come up Mm -hmm. and, you know, it was still even now 20 months on or 21 months on, she had to remind me, Rebecca, it's a mental illness. Like you did as much as you could, um, but it's not your fault. And, you know, even now that's something I still need to hear because, yeah, like I said, there is such a thing, I guess, in our culture or our society that mental health is something we can control. And if we just think a certain way or if we just change our mindset, then we can fix it or we can control it. And Mm. our brains are very powerful things. We can't control, just like we can't think our way out of diabetes or a broken leg or something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So obviously you've had quite a journey. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You've been, been through just a really, really intense period of time. And with your you know, you, you said that you have a lot, a lot of hindsight now being able to look back and see what was going yeah. on at the time. What was that part of what prompted you to start the podcast or what was the process for you to, to yeah. start your podcast? I mean, a big part of me as a person, um, my degree, you know, if we go back to my profession, we're talking English literature, linguistics, editing, publishing. So storytelling was always a really big 
part of my life, writing, reading, you know, I was that kid. So when I was in the hospital and, you know, we start taking up things like journaling and things, it just felt like I was coming back to myself, I guess. Nice. And when I got out of the hospital, you know, things weren't, you know, we're not talking everything's miraculously cured or whatever, you know, you're still going through the motions, but I had all those skills that were slowly starting to come back that I did get quote unquote better, maybe faster than others may have, you know, that acute Mm. episode at least was winding down. So by about three months postpartum, I was coming out of the depression and anxiety and I'd been writing down bits and pieces of what had happened to me, trying to process it, trying to make sense of it. And then I was hit with grief at three months postpartum and that Mm. grief lasted probably another three months. And that was just this sheer sense of what the hell did I just go through? How much of my motherhood journey did I just lose? And again, that's where that blame comes in because of my anxiety, because of myself, because of my experience. I lost that newborn bubble. I was discharged from the hospital the day after my son turned six weeks old. That is the newborn stage and that was gone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what story I have to tell about that, that was, again, not the story I wanted to tell. That's not the story I thought I would tell. So yeah, that grief was all-consuming and, yeah, you're dealing still with the leftover of the PTSD. So, you know, you're going past the hospital where you give birth. And, again, it's not the hospital's fault, but it's where things went wrong. Right. right. And I'm bursting into tears just purely by driving past it. And I didn't expect it. I didn't see it coming. So, you know, you're still dealing with all of that. And, again, I'm still using writing, trying to come out of that. And that's when I just started to think, I don't know, do I want to put the story out there? Do You know, will this help someone? Will giving people an option to share their stories help someone like me feel less alone? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, here I am, I'd had an experience, past experience, history with mental ill health, anxiety. I thought I was an advocate. I thought I knew there was all that I could know and champion for mental health. And then you go through something like this and you, you have the rug pulled out from under you. And, you know, you think you're an educated woman, you know, you're Mm. a professional, you know, you think all these things about yourself and that whole worldview just changes overnight. And, you know, you go into a psychiatric hospital and what kind of motherhood journey is that? And that's so lonely and isolating and no one talks about that. No one talks about having to go on medication, having to go to a psychiatric hospital you know, having to, you know, PTSD symptoms. Like, you know, we talk about, oh, birth can be traumatic. Well, what does that mean? Like what Mm -hmm. are, no one was speaking about that. And then when I did start to open up about what I went through with family and friends, I have people telling me, yeah, my sister was in that hospital. My friend of a friend was in that hospital. My auntie was in that hospital. Mm -hmm. And we know people who go through this. No one talks about it. And that was, I just think how less scared would I have been about everything that was happening? Maybe had I known, I don't know if it would have helped, but I just thought I know what it was like to be in that hospital thinking I was never going to be discharged and that they were going to lock me up and take my baby away. Mm-hmm. You know, that, yes, I felt safe there, but there was still that underlying fear that they're not going to be able to help me. I'm too far gone. I'm too broken. Better just cut their losses now. You know, there was still that underlying belief. and. Yeah, so that's when I started to think about, okay, 
we're talking compassion here, we're talking connection, you know, all these pieces of the puzzle and storytelling and journaling. And I'm just starting to think, what if I do something like a podcast, which is so foreign to me, like, I don't know where that came (laughs) into my head, but it wouldn't leave. I couldn't get it out of my head. And so during that grief process, I'm thinking of these things and it's slowly starting to pull me out of that grief, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm starting to channel my energy. Okay, what would this actually look like? What would I need to do? And so you're researching this kind of stuff. So that's starting to pull you out of that mm-hmm. grief, you know, that experience or the lingering depression or anxiety that has come with all of this. I mean, you're still dealing with the birth trauma or PTSD and right. whatever, but yeah, that was starting to pull me out. So about six months postpartum, I, you know, I registered for a business or whatever. I haven't made money off the podcast, but I've still, you know, registered as a business. <laughs> and I just thought, let me just see, let me try to make this work. So I started to work on a website. Let me see what social media would look like. You know, let me see how serious I am about this. And it took another three months. So I was about nine months postpartum when I made my first Instagram post. And, you know, I created that community on social media first. I thought I would have the podcast released at that time. But yeah, when I went to try to tell my story for the first episode, all of a sudden, (laughs) that was really hard to do. So it took a while for me to get that confidence, probably another six months after that. I released the first episode in November last year. Mm -hmm. So it's only been about five months of the podcast, but, you know, it took a while for me to gain that courage. But I think that that was a good thing. I was testing the waters, like, how serious am I about this? And it just felt like something I had to do. It just felt very values driven. This is me wanting to make sense of my experience and hope that it helps someone in the process. So I started to share snippets of my story on social media. It was far more overwhelming to try to piece the whole thing together for a podcast episode as I'm sure you figured out today it's a long story (laughs) but yeah snippets and bits and pieces that I was making sense of at the time and you know I had people messaging me like I didn't go through that exact thing but I remember feeling the same way or you know oh I went through that thing or oh my doctor just mentioned an MBU and I was so scared but I just saw what you wrote and I'm actually going to do it you know those were the things that it was like Yeah, it was, it just felt important and it felt like I had to do it and I haven't stopped thinking about it since. So we're talking (laughs) over a year and a half later since the idea first popped into my head. But Mm -hmm. look, until I stop having that feeling, (laughs) I'm still just going to keep going with it. And yeah, that's what prompted it. And, you know, obviously I wish I'd known about your space. Um, your incredible space that you've created, your podcast. But yeah, at the time, I just thought I want a space that I wish I had. I wanted someone to talk about this stuff, you know, the psychiatric hospitals or the antidepressants or the sleep medication or things like this, because it is so isolating. We don't talk about this. Yeah, we can talk about, oh, a little bit of depression and I'm watching Netflix and eating ice cream in bed. You know, we talk about the palatable side of mental health. We don't talk yep. about there's still that secretive side or that, oh, that's too scary. We're not going to go there side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that just does such a disservice. So I wanted to open up a space, whether it's a mild experience, whether it's a more severe experience. Absolutely. I just thought people, we all need space held for us and for our experience. And that was the motivation. Yeah. And I think that like where you are, Uh, I think there is an importance to having, how do I want to say like country specific, 
Yeah, and I made a point of that, like I said before, purely, again, because I'm hard enough to navigate our own system, but if talking about it, you know, hearing Australian mothers share their story of navigating our system, that Mm. improves mental health literacy, that improves how we can or who we know, who we can approach, who we can talk yes. to, you know, the yeah. helplines that are specific to Australia, the yeah. programs that are specific to Australia, the Medicare kind of benefits that are specific to this country. And as much as I would love to hold space for the whole world, I do get asked all the time and I have to apologise profusely, but I really want to make it accessible here so that someone yeah. here knows, okay, this is a number I can call or, hey, that sub, you know, our local councils have a mental health crisis team. Oh, I didn't know that. Maybe I can call them. You know, it's things that we need to 100%. learn about. And yeah, as, like I said, as much as I would love to hold space for the whole world, I would if I had <laughs> the the time and the energy and the, the capacity. But um, yeah, I focused it this way so that we can understand our own system and then we can potentially learn skills to navigate our own system. Absolutely. Yeah. We've done an amazing job. It's quite a thing to go from your own experience to sharing your experience and then creating that space for other people. And it's so necessary. It just is. So I'm a thousand percent sure you're filling a void that, you know, people need this. People need it. I was going to like say in like culture in the same sort of not language specifically, obviously for this, but like language, meaning like there are certain words that you are going to use that people who are local to you are in your country are going to understand in a way that, you know, other folks won't or don't have the same connection to like that matters. It just Mm. really does. Mm. So anyhow, yeah, I really thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. It's I know there are people who uh, are going to hear what you've been through and be able to resonate with it and feel heard and seen. And then also because a fair amount of therapists listen as well and birthing professionals be able to then also potentially support somebody who's going through it. I hope so. I just, I hope, like I say all the time, I just hope it helps someone out there feel less alone. Mm Mm-hmm less scared of themselves, less scared of the help that's out there. Yes, there's some not so good help, but gosh, there's some really good help out there. And it sucks that you have to fight for it sometimes, or you have to keep asking for help, or you have to try some help and then go to a different. It sucks that you have to do that, but there is such good help out there. And I hope you find it. If you don't find it the first time, keep trying, please keep trying. There is help out there. Absolutely. Thank you for your time and for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, truly, for letting me chat. And again, I know it's such a heavy story. It's such a long story to try to fit into a short amount of time. But yeah, I'm hoping um, it helps someone out there, maybe. (laughs) I know that it will. I know. Thank Thank you. you. Please connect with Rebecca through her website, Instagram, or Facebook at Perinatal Stories Australia. And you can listen wherever podcasts are played on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And whenever we hear a story on the podcast or really anywhere where you know that somebody else could benefit from hearing this information, from hearing this lived experience, I really encourage you to share even if it's with just one other person who you know could really benefit from knowing that they're not alone. It's so important and so powerful that we're sharing these stories 
so that people can get the help that they need and deserve. Thank you so much for being with us. Until next time. Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com, where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.